Colossians chapter 2 and uh, verse 16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. Um, wanted to bring just some more light to this topic that we taught on about a month ago, right before I left for Israel, uh, which really was titled um, just having a high value for the Lord's Day. And don't forget the previous uh, three teachings we've had in Colossians so far where the Gnostic heresy was creeping into Colossae and, uh, and into their church with its form of cultic doctrines that had a mixture of um, mysticism and legalism and asceticism. And I think that uh, Blaine finished the chapter for me a few weeks ago uh, dealing with that aestheticism that, uh, you know, the way you might clothe yourself or the may, way you might starve yourself or beat yourself or things like that, that indeed the chapter ends with have an outer form of religious appearance, but, you know, doesn't do anything uh, against the indulgences of the flesh and the lust of the flesh. Like, like bottom line is um, we need to have a heart issue uh, transformed by grace and, and by the gospel. And Colossians, actually, if you'll remember, uh, when we taught on this high esteem for the Lord's Day, um, it, it goes into the gospel and the um, handwriting in verse 14 of requirements that had been against us were wiped out, which were contrary to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And so as we go into this teaching on a value for the Lord's day, we're not teaching any sort of legalistic, self-righteous salvation or works-based salvation. That in the context has already been taken care of at the cross. Um, Rory Rogers had a handwriting of requirements that was against him, uh, none the least of which were the Ten Commandments, uh, including the fourth of uh, just a lack of care for the Sabbath or even observance of the Sabbath. And so that was nailed to the cross with Jesus. And I was uh, set free and forgiven. And uh, he took that out of the way, nailed it to the cross, verse 14. And in that, did a spiritual work, disarming principalities and powers, making a publical, publical spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And so the gospel is that uh, what the law couldn't do and that it was weak in the flesh, Romans chapter 8, verse 3, God did by sending his son. He did it for us. And then that righteousness was imputed to us um, by faith. And so um, that's important to remember as we go into that. We already know that we are, we are not saved by works. We're not justified by works and by the, deeds of the, uh, by the deeds of the law. No flesh shall be justified. And so those are important foundational principles as we get into this. Um, and so... Uh, the Colossians were just having a trip put on them by the cults of um, mysticism, legalism, which was a pressing upon them of Jewish ceremonial law, and then asceticism uh, as means of righteousness. And then following that beautiful gospel picture we just read, so 
is the word in verse 16. Because of this, um, this idea of not being judged in what we eat or festivals or new moons or Sabbath, uh, it's all in light of the cross. Um, there were the dietary laws that could often become a trip on people. And then there were the day laws and rules can be summed up in diets and days. Matthew Henry wrote about this verse, much of the ceremonies of the law of Moses consisted in the distinction of meats and days. And so these, this phrase that we have here in verse 17 or 16, rather uh, festival, new moon, or Sabbaths, these phrases together are often mentioned together in the ceremonial law of Moses. Uh, and so that is a clue to us that he's not talking of the moral law, but the ceremonial law that was being forced upon uh, the Colossian church there. And uh, John Murray, professor of Westminster Theological Seminary, wrote, the Sabbath institution is a creation ordinance. So that's important as we're talking about days, um, the Sabbath, not Sabbaths, but the Sabbath, um, you, you want to write in your notes, creation ordinance. And we're going to come back to that in a second. But Genesis was incorporated, John Murray goes on to say, in the moral law of the Decalogue of the Ten Commandments. Therefore, it is not set aside with the ceremonial law, but it has abiding significance. In the New Testament, the early church gathered to break bread as a perpetual reoccurring memorial to Jesus' resurrection. Uh, in a little bit, we'll read John, or John's account in Revelation 1.10 of the Lord's Day. Um, Murray goes on to say, The abiding sanctity of each reoccurring seventh day as the memorial of God's rest in creation, of Christ's exaltation in his resurrection, is not to be regarded as in any way impaired by, for instance, Romans 14.5. We'll read it in a second. The reference there is to the ceremonial law, which has been set aside, but not to the moral law to which we can return. To live not to be accepted by God, but to live to show our love for God. And let me say that again. To live not to be accepted by God, but to live to show our love for God, having been set free by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is always a tension that we find in the New Testament, whether you're in Romans, Galatians, uh, Colossians chapter 2, or the book of James, what seems to be a tension of, of uh, works and grace, works and grace. And as we've studied James together, as we've studied Galatians together, as we've studied Romans together, um, you know, it's, it's our position as a church that we are not saved by works, not saved by works. Um, we are not justified by the deeds of the flesh, but as we've studied in depth in the book of James, we are saved for good works. And the gospel is we couldn't do the law and save ourselves. Jesus came and did it. He saved us. And now he gives us the Holy Spirit, the desire to obey and the power to obey. Those who believe, obey, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. <laughs> Those who believe, obey. And so 
What we have in this verse, chapter 2, verse 16, is often misunderstood, misinterpreted, misexegeted uh, to be just to let us just be walk away from any sort of regard for the Lord's day. And that would be an improper interpretation of Colossians chapter 2. Uh, along with Colossians chapter 2 is Romans 14.3, where diets and days, again, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant to his own master? He stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God's able to make him stand. And so, you know, we've gone through that as a church, you know. Uh, we've talked about the freedoms and the liberties that we have in our diets and in our drinking, you know, in our ability to have a beer or a glass of wine or things like that. Liberties that we have in Christ uh, or things that we are able to eat. Uh, we've taught on that many times in this church. And so now we just spend a little bit of time as a church. What about the days part of the diets and days and being under grace with the days? And that passage talked about the days and then now it talk, or talked about the diet. Now it says the days, Romans 14, 5. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat, so he gives God thanks. So keep that in mind and go to Galatians chapter 4, verse 9. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. So guys, I've been a Calvary Chapel pastor in some form or another for 20 years. I don't look that old. I don't feel that old. But for 20 years, I've been teaching through the word of God. And to be honest with you, verse by verse through, uh, by the time I was 27, I'd already taught verse by verse through the entire New Testament. And so I've come to these passages before, but I'll be honest with you, in a lot of the methodology of going through the word, we, I've breezed over and almost every Calvary pastor that I've been a part of has breezed over this to where R.A. Torrey put it, uh, we have a loose interpretation of these passages. And we haven't taken the time, because it just seems legalistic, it seems law, and so it just seems like, well, you know, there's no application for it today, so let's just hop over and get to the next good thing that maybe seems more relevant to this day and age. And so I really believe that, you know, in the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in us, he has brought me in my, in my responsibility to you guys to rightly divide the word of truth and to do what Paul was able to say in Acts chapter 20, that I have held back nothing from you, to be able to be faithful to um, a text like this and to look at it within context. Because in Romans and Galatians and Colossians, the context behind it is that trips were being put on people to be justified by the works of the flesh. It was a salvation issue, which is always where legalism is at, at its root. You go clear back to Acts chapter 15, and what was the problem with circumcision? It wasn't whether or not people were getting circumcised. The problem was you're only saved if you're circumcised. You can only be saved if you're circumcised. You must be circumcised to be saved. And that's when the giant hubbub arose in the Jerusalem church. And so uh, with that, 
Uh, you've got Romans and Galatians and, and Judaizers coming in and putting legalistic bondage on people saying, unless you do these works of the law, you cannot be saved. Rather than vice versa, because you are saved by the grace of God, you do the works of the law. And in that, we're talking moral, not ceremonial, not circumcision, not uh, really the rest of the books of, of Exodus and Leviticus and the things like that. So you've got these passages. And so because of these, I personally have just kind of, just kind of, oh, uh, let no one judge you in days. Or, you know, you just kind of, oh, uh, you know, and you just, it's just, it seems more gracious, doesn't it? It just seems like, oh, that, that's just grace to be able to do that. But what if in, in our loose interpretation, we're missing out on an incredible blessing that God from day, I want to say day one, but day seven, has created for us to have intimacy with him. Uh, just as a week of fasting and prayer, or a day of fasting and prayer, or an hour of fasting and prayer. It's just a day that he's designed, it's a time that he's designed for us to draw near and to experience blessing and grace from him. And so you've got Colossians 2.16, Romans 14, Galatians chapter 4, uh, the man who took over Spurgeon's ministry and, and began writing the sword and the trowel from Spurgeon's magazine, he wrote, such texts warn Gentile converts who are keeping the Lord's Day not to be subverted by the Judaizers into adopting Jewish customs, including the Sabbath, as a means of earning their salvation. Their dependence was to be on Calvary alone. In Romans 14, Paul urges that no pressure be brought on converted Jews who cannot bring themselves to give up Jewish food laws and feast days as long as they did not think these customs contributed to their salvation. No, Listen to this. No serious exegesis will conclude that these texts are against the fourth commandment as expressed in the Lord's day. It happens to be that the day I taught on this on a Sunday was the day in school of ministry that we were teaching the school about Bible interpretation. Some of you were there. And how do we know if some things are, are just temporary and for the past or just for the Jews or just for the Ephesians or just for, and what is for today? And, by, and I'm going through our rules of interpretation that I'm teaching our school and I'm going, everything that I've just kind of wisped over in the past has been loose interpretation at best. It's not been sound exegesis of the scripture from Genesis through the law of Moses, through the prophets, through the gospels, through the book of Acts, through the epistles, through the book of Revelation. Just disregarding those things. And most guys that I read that from the past, it's just been a hopscotch over that. And so my conscience before the Lord is, I've got to plow straight lines in the word for our church as one who will give an account before the Lord. And so still doing that, it's not over today, but it's very serious. Take it serious. Uh, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, some of these guys you'll notice I quote regularly, uh, guys that are in my Logos Bible software, guys that are encouraged by Calvary Chapel pastors to read. Um, they say, to regard the observance of certain days as in itself meritorious as a work is alien to the free spirit of Christianity. Amen? Like, maybe you didn't catch that, but to, to maybe hear Rory say, value the Lord's day, it's meritorious for you as a work, you're going to be saved by doing it. 
then that should cause red flags to go up. Ping, 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 ping. And that's legalism. That's self-righteousness. That's works-based salvation. Okay? Fawcett and Brown Jameson. I wish there was a quicker way to say their commentary name. <laughs> the commentary name is longer than the names of the authors. So I don't know. that JFB is what I usually call them. Um, <clears throat> they wrote, this is not incompatible with observing the Sabbath or the Christian Lord's Day as obligatory. Though not as a work, which was the Jewish and Gentile error in the observance of days, but as a holy mean appointed by the Lord for attaining the great end, holiness. So this is a gift from the Lord, a conduit to tap into his holiness in our life. Just like fasting is a means, it's a conduit, it's a, it's a way that we plug into the life that God gives us. And so just let's go back to Genesis, the seventh day. On the seventh day, God ended his work, Genesis 2-2, which he'd done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he'd done. Whole, I mean, I've been reading books on this and whole chapters are given to, um, why did the Lord do it in seven days? He didn't need to do it in seven days. He could have done it in one day. He could have done it in a second. But in his sovereign design, we see at the end of it, just for one thing, is that he gave us a calendar. He gave us the week that to this day, we still use the week. Okay, And in his design, on that day, he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he'd done. Didn't need, you know, it wasn't, oh gosh, boy, that was just way too much for me. You know, but he rested from any more of this labor to set a precedent. God blessed the seventh day. Now just listen to this language. God blessed the seventh day. Secondly, he sanctified it. In other words, he made it holy. Why? He gets to. <laughs> this is what we call creator rights. I don't know why he did it, except that he did it. And then it's going to serve to be a blessing for us following. He sanctified it. He made it holy. Because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Dr. Peter Masters from uh, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, having taken over Spurgeon's ministry centuries later, these words can only refer to something truly momentous that God did for the obedience and benefit of the human race. And he communicated it to Adam and Eve. And so in our Bible interpretation, we look at the rules of first mention. Okay, the rules of first mention. So when we look at the Sabbath, our first mention isn't Mosaic law. It's not law. Our first mention is creation ordinance. Okay, clear back in Genesis chapter 2. We use the same principle when we look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 and the role of women in the church, particularly as bishops, elders, pastors, or shepherds. As Paul says, let a woman learn in silence with submission. Don't be offended by that. This is just a wonderful role that God, that God has designed. And then Paul said, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. 
And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Okay, so, uh, so we have the position at Calvary Chapel that, that the positions of leadership, the role, are for uh, men. Okay, now that's not uh, sexist or anything like that. We're just trying to be biblical. And it's actually a gift from the Lord. It's his design. And it doesn't mean the women aren't valuable. It doesn't mean they don't have gifts. It doesn't mean they're not smarter than us and would probably even lead better than us. Okay, I'll be first to admit. But it's the design of the Lord. And it's, it's an example of the gospel, even when you look at a marriage relationship. Okay, And it doesn't mean that the women don't have a kaleidoscope of, of areas that they can serve within a church. It's just that these offices the pastoral epistles tell us, are reserved for the gender of male. Just how God designed it. Be mad at God, not me. Um, So anyways, tons of arguments come up against this. Okay? And I'm given books on it. And the books and everything that I get on this subject, they, they take the culture and then they twist the scriptures to fit whatever culture we're in. Okay, that's called eisegesis. It's something we want to avoid. Rather than taking the scriptures and reading them and let them speak for themselves uh, in exegesis or to pull out and draw it from the text. And so one of the things that we have to help us understand that this wasn't just something for um, you know the 30 ADs. This wasn't just something that Ephesus was going through and the education levels that the women had in Ephesus, but now you know women have the ability to go to Bible college and this and that and the other. Uh, this it has nothing to do with that. Uh, and one way, one way that we know that is because in this passage regarding women in leadership, where does Paul take it? He takes it clear back to. He takes it clear, clear back to creation. Okay, he takes it clear back to design. And then he even takes it to what happens when those roles aren't worked out rightly. A fall, okay? And so Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, goes back. And so it's just an example to us that in our interpretation, we go back to rules of first mention and we go from there. Okay, so, um, man, I've got books that I'm going to encourage you guys, but they're just books and so you just take them at a grain of salt. But um, just I feel very good exegesis of the Scripture uh, going through all of the different covenants, whether you're talking Adamic or no, Noah or Abraham or and and the the rules that God would give post flood, right there with the altar and the rainbow, rules that God would give pre law that helped men to function in the way that God designed men to function. Okay, it's not legalism; it's it's God's design. And so then we have, um, you know where we have it come into Mosaic law. So it's pre-Moses, pre-law, creation ordinance, and then Exodus chapter 20 is Ten Commandment time. Okay, Six days you shall labor. This is the um, fourth commandment. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. 
For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Okay, so what we have here again is um, really you have almost a redemptive indicative preceding the law. And later on in Deuteronomy's account, we're going to see redemption from Egypt even included in that. And so you have, because the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it, it should be something that is blessed and hallowed in our eyes. John Flavel notes several marks of honor that we see in the fourth commandment. Number one, it's the longest of all the commandments. Number two, it has a solemn reminder and warning prefixed to it. Three, I remember learning in speech class not to use your fingers when you're counting off. So, Jeremy, you remember that, right? <laughs> you see the president like, <laughs> okay. Anyways, I'm going to do it for you guys because there's only four. It is delivered both positively and negatively, which the other commandments are not. And fourthly, it is enforced with more arguments to strengthen the command than any other. In Exodus 31:17, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. So, yes, it's between the children of Israel, and so we're going to get into when then does it become for the church. But how long does this last? What's the statute? Forever. For in six days, and then he goes back to creation. Six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So, just a term to remember, creation ordinance, pre-Moses, divine design, distinct and holy. Okay? It's right up there with marriage. Okay? It's right up there in the creation account with marriage. Who do we marry? Well, men marry women and women marry men. God made it. He gets to say how it's done. How long are people married? Well, forever. I mean, I should say till death. Okay? And then in heaven, they're not married. Okay? Uh, God gets to say how it's done because he created it. Okay? Creator rights. Clear back to Genesis as well. Now, we look at Jesus' life. While Jesus walked on the earth, did he observe the Sabbath? He observed the Sabbath. He did not end the Sabbath. We see he had a regard for the Ten Commandments. And by the way, when you look at the commandments and you look at the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments are always set apart from all the other laws and all the other ceremonial laws. The references will always be, just go back to the basics, go back to the Ten Commandments. Okay, When you're reading uh, Exodus, when you're reading Deuteronomy, uh, the Ten Commandments, the tablets. Okay, there were, there were two tablets, and those were what was ultimately what would carry on. They were written in stone, and they were written with the finger of God. Okay, uh, And so Jesus would use the Ten Commandments, like for instance when he spoke to the rich young ruler. What are the commandments? And the, the young man listed off him and said, I've done them. And then the Lord touches a button on him that says, well, here's what you lack. You need to go and sell everything you own. And you give it away to the poor. And the man went away sad because he was wealthy and had great possessions. But in that, Jesus did not cast out the Ten Commandments. Jesus did not say that they were 
obsolete, worth nothing anymore. There was, there was a value for the Ten Commandments, even in Jesus. And we know that Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. So that then we, through him, could have fulfilled it as well. And now being full of the Holy Spirit, we're able to live lives of victory over disobedience. Okay? So he would use the Ten Commandments as a tool. He does it on the Sermon on the Mount to show people their need for righteousness, to show that it goes deeper than external appearances. Well, look, I haven't murdered. And then he shows in the depths of the heart that if you're angry with your brother, that you've murdered in your heart. And and if you've lusted in your heart after a woman, then you've committed adultery in your heart. He goes even deeper into the heart of the matter. But the Pharisees, they tried to put their legalistic rules and their twists from man onto the law and onto Jesus. They added through their rabbis and their writings to these rules to make them something that was self-righteous and was something that were heavy yokes that neither we nor our fathers could bear. And Jesus would rebuke them. And in the case of the Sabbath, he would boil down the true meanings of the Sabbath, which include helping others. And he's able to do that and able to clarify that because he'll end it by saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the creator from the beginning. I've got creator rights and I'm telling you, you're misusing the Sabbath. And so let's look at that. Well, real quick, let's look at Luke 4.16. When Jesus came to Nazareth where he was brought up at, and as is his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So, first of all, it was his custom to observe the Sabbath. And then in Matthew 12, though, we see the... Uh, I'm just going to... I'm going to go ahead and paraphrase for the sake of time. Disciples walking through a grain field, or some people say cornfield. And I've actually been in this field that this took place and there's a whole lot of grain there to this day. And we walked through and we kind of picked the grain and we, you know, ate it and stuff and kind of relived it. And, uh, and the Pharisees rebuked Jesus and rebuked his disciples. His disciples were hungry, so they began to pluck and to eat. And so they uh, rebuke him and say, uh, why are they doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And and Jesus uses the example of David full on going into the tabernacle and taking the showbread and eating it as an example of God cares more about man than he does about the Sabbath. Okay, Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, gets to say that. Okay, And then he uses the example of how the priests who have to work every Sabbath in the tabernacle and around the temple, um, they profane the Sabbath, but they do it as priestly duties and they're blameless. And so he says, I'm greater than the temples. And he says, you forgot what Hosea says. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Or else you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless. Now then he says, Matthew 12, 8, for the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay, so then he goes from there and he departs. And he goes in his synagogue and there's a man who has a withered hand. It's the Sabbath. And they ask him saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? And then he says, The Lord of the Sabbath says, what man is there among you who has one sheep if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not lay hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he says, stretch out your hand, stretch it, it's whole as the other. Mark's account of this in chapter 2 of Mark, he says, the Sabbath was made for man. This is key. It's key that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. 
It's key that it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And it's key that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. You twist that and you become legalistic. You twist that and you become a self-righteous Pharisee that's putting rules on people. And the Lord of the Sabbath clarifies to us just how the Sabbath was to be done. Matthew Henry writes, the Sabbath is a sacred, and so real quick, first of all, let's touch on Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And Henry writes, it's, it's lengthy, so just bear with me. The Sabbath is a sacred and divine institution, but we must first receive and embrace it as a privilege and a benefit, not as a task or drudgery. First, God never designed it to be an imposition upon us, and therefore we must not make it so ourselves. Man was not made for the Sabbath. Uh, For he was made a day before the Sabbath was instituted. Man was made for God and for his honor and service. And he he just rather die than deny him. But he was not made for the Sabbath so as to be tied up by the law of it. From that which is necessary to the support of his life. Secondly, God did design it to be an advantage to us so that we must make it and improve it. He made it for man. He had some regard to our body's institution that it might rest and not be tired out with the constant business of the world that thy manservant and their maidservant may rest. Now he that intended the Sabbath rest for the repose of our bodies certainly never intended it should restrain us in case of necessity from fetching in the necessary supports of the body. It must be construed so as not to contradict itself for edification, not for destruction. Two, He had much more regard for our souls. The Sabbath was made as a day of rest, only in order to its being a day of holy work, a day of communion with God, a day of praise and thanksgiving, and the rest from worldly business is therefore necessary that we may closely apply ourselves to this work and spend the whole time in it, in public and in private. But then time is allowed for us, which is necessary to the fitting of our bodies for the service of our souls in God's service and the enabling of them to keep pace with them in that work. See here, first of all, what a good master we serve, all whose institutions are for our own benefit. And if we be so wise to observe them, we are wise for ourselves. It's not he, but we that are gainers by our service. Secondly, what we should aim at in our Sabbath work, even the good of our own souls. If the Sabbath was made for man, we should then ask ourselves at night, when am I the better for this Sabbath day? Third, What care we ought to take not to make those exercises of religious burdens to ourselves or others which God ordained to be blessings. Let me just say that again. In all of this, we have a default of making it a big burden that we have to carry. And that's something that we just always have to war about between works and grace, right? Uh, Not to put yokes upon ourselves, but God wants it to be a blessing. Neither adding to the command by unreasonable strictness so that's something we're going to talk about a little bit practically. How's this look in my life? Well, we don't want to add to anything with unreasonable strictness. Uh, nor indulging those corruptions which are adverse to the command, for thereby we make those devout exercises a penance to ourselves, which otherwise would be a pleasure. And so that long paragraph basically sums up that uh, the Sabbath was made for man. And then what about when Jesus says the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath? Well, first of all, it's interesting. When this first began to be a discussion in our house, 
we're talking through it. Lindsay and I are talking through it. And Lindsay goes, well, you know, I just understood Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. So we don't observe the Sabbath anymore. And then we got talking about, well, how does that make sense? Jesus is the Lord of mercy, so I'm not merciful anymore. I mean, he, he'll do it. He does it, you know. Uh, he's the Lord of the Sabbath, so forget you, Sabbath. I mean, that doesn't make sense, right? And JFP, uh, JFB says it the same. In what sense now is the Son of Man Lord of the Sabbath day? Not surely to abolish it. That surely were a strange lordship. Especially just after saying that it was made or instituted for man. But to own it. The Lord of the Sabbath interprets it. He presides over it. And he ennobles it. By merging it in the Lord's Day, Revelation 1.10. Breathing into it an air of liberty and love necessarily unknown before. And thus making it the nearest resemblance to the eternal Sabbatism. And so what he has done as the Lord of the Sabbath makes it possible in what Hebrews talks about in chapter 4 of entering in the rest. He gives us rest as Lord of the Sabbath. He doesn't disregard the observance or the rest or the keeping it holy or the um, distinctiveness of it. Ian D. Campbell in the commentary opening up Matthew writes here, the Sabbath as a creation ordinance is of perpetual significance. And in Christ, we have the incarnate King, the God of the Old Testament, who gave Sinai's law to his people and the Sabbath rest to man now among us, exercising the authority that that is his alone. Charles Spurgeon says when Jesus said that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, That explanation did not alter the command, but only removed the rust of tradition which had settled upon it. By thus explaining the law, he confirmed it. He could not have meant to abolish it, or he would not have needed to expound it. Uh, Dr. Masters wrote in The Sword and the Trowel, We naturally want to know how much of the Sabbath commandment is binding for today. All or some of it. Under the law of Moses, additional rules came in for that covenant that were extremely strict. For example, no food was to be prepared on the Sabbath, no fire kindled, no sticks gathered, and there were ceremonial rules for showbread and special sacrifices with the severest of penalties for profaning the day. During the period from Moses to Christ, the Sabbath acquired these ceremonial commitments because it also served as a sign of the special covenant that God had with the Jews. In Exodus 31.12. The reason Sabbath breaking was severely punished was because it showed contempt to the special covenant relationship God had with that people. But when Christ came, that temporary covenant with the Jews came to an end, and the strict, inflexible, extra regulations given to Moses for Sabbath keeping also ended. Also, Once Christ came, all symbols that pointed to him were fulfilled, becoming obsolete. That's what we read about in Colossians chapter 2. Not surprisingly, the Sabbath was moved by God to the first day of the week, the day of Christ's resurrection, which signaled the success of his work at Calvary. This was obviously implemented by the apostles, who would have been moved by the Holy Spirit to do so, perhaps from the fact that Christ appeared to them on successive first days of the week, and also by revelation. He goes on to say, the Lord explicitly said the Sabbath was made for man, 
and was not therefore solely for Israel. Those who say the fourth commandment is not mentioned in the New Testament fail to consider the universal scale and scope of Christ's words here when they relegate the Sabbath to the scrap heap of Jewish ceremonial. He writes on to say, the eternal son of God claimed it as his own and pronounced his lordship over it. How can anyone possibly say this principle of one day in seven for God is finished and not in the New Testament? Can we imagine that the Lord would make this magnificent announcement over something he was about to relegate to the level of discarded ceremonies? Those who do not see a Sabbath day principle in the New Testament follow a strange method of interpretation in ignoring such a colossal primary and pivotal statement by the Lord of glory. Christ's lordship over the Sabbath means nothing less than the following. He owns the Sabbath. He's to be the focus of worship. He is the rightful interpreter to change the day of the week and to shape its characteristics. And he is the custodian and the perpetuator. Now, what can be done on the Sabbath as seen in the gospel accounts? Well, first of all, we have agriculture. Okay, what about taking in the crops? This is applicable to people in our body. We've got Mark and Adam, uh, you know, who are out there harvesting and the teskies and things like that. So, so what about taking in the crops? In a sense, isn't that what the boys were doing there, <laughs> picking up the grain? The Old Testament forbade taking in the harvest on the Sabbath. But even this rule would have yielded to absolute necessity. There was a 16th century well-respected Swiss reformer named Henry Bollinger who referred to the examples of Sabbath emergencies. And he wrote the following, If then on the Sabbath day it be lawful to draw out of the pit a sheep or an ox in danger of drowning, why should it not be lawful likewise to gather in and keep from spoiling the hay or the corn, which by reason of unseasonable weather has lain too long and likely to be worse if it stay any longer. Liberty is granted in cases of necessity. It's refreshing to have such writings that are gracious when we're dealing with such a subject. We also see from the gospel accounts there with Jesus that the priests and the ministers in the church and in the temple have duties that need to be attended to on the Lord's Day. Not only that, but acts of mercy as well. The requirement of the law of Moses that priests should work on the Sabbath is connected with worship, technically desecrated the Sabbath, but their holy work was exempted from Sabbath rule. The Sabbath, despite its apparent inflexibility and prohibitions, always did yield, said the Lord, to special duty or necessity and to works of mercy. This is obviously the case today, but necessity should not become a word so elastic that it stretches to cover anything we want to do so that wholehearted dedication to the day of God is ruined. has to be a real necessity. People need to have it in their hearts and minds to honor the Lord's day. But sometimes there are exceptional circumstances. Now, we also see that there was a shift in church history from worshiping on Saturday as Sabbath to Sunday as the Lord's day. Now, when you read the book of Acts, the early church continued to meet on the Sabbath. And they continued to meet in the temple regularly. They were never accused in the New Testament of profaning the Sabbath day. Look at Paul's ministry and the lengths that he went to to still have an effective ministry to the Jews. He didn't compromise that by having an absolute disregard for the Sabbath day. 
But he also began to observe the Lord's Day on the first day of the week. They began to hold their main meetings on Sunday in remembrance of the resurrection of Jesus. As we observed last Sunday on Easter, each gospel tells us that the Lord rose from the dead on the first day of the week. On the first day of the week. And in John 20, verse 19 and 26, we observe the other appearance of the resurrection were also on subsequent Sundays. While the Jewish Sabbath remembered the deliverance from Egypt, the Christian Lord's Day focuses on the resurrection and the proof of the effective work of Jesus on the cross. It's gospel-centered. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to part the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. And so we see that Luke, as the eyewitness, references the first New Testament distinctive Christian worship service which incorporated the Lord's Supper. What day was it on? The first day of the week. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he says, concerning the collection for the saints as I've given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do. So Galatia had some seven different churches in its Asia Minor region. He had given orders to the church in Galatia, the churches in Galatia, and also the Corinthian church, that on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing as you may prosper. As they gathered, they were to bring their tithes and their offerings. This was orders given. Orders is a strong word, isn't it? Don't put a legalistic trip on me, Paul. Galatia, churches in Galatia, and to um, Corinth. First day of the week. And then Revelation 1.10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, John the Revelator says, and I heard before me a loud voice. It's simply not correct to say that a specific day for worship and proclamation Continuing the principle of the fourth commandment is not seen in the New Testament. I just, I can't get there. The martyr Ignatius, who lived in 30 AD to 107 AD, was the third minister of the church at Antioch and probably a student of John, wrote, let every friend of Christ keep the Lord's day as a festival, the resurrection day, the queen in chief of all the days of the week. Masters writes, the term the Lord's Day powerfully indicates the way in which the day should be spent. It is for him, and it centers on him. It is not for us, for our earthly pleasures, or our self-indulgence, or our fun and games. It is for spiritual joys, learning, and service, and for fellowship in him. Now, in all of this, my main emphasis is not so much should we meet on Saturday or should we meet on Sunday or those that meet on Wednesday? Oh, those guys are like total sinners. It's Sunday, 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 Sunday. You know, I sound like a monster truck rally guy. That's not the chief issue here. Although I think biblical president would say it's, it's the day to meet as, as the church. It's the day to remember and to keep holy and to use special concentrated time, um, for these matters. Um, the Nepali church, who we've grown to love so much, they meet on Saturday. But in their Saturday meeting, 
they remember the Lord's Day. They remember the Sabbath. And they keep it holy. And they hike and travel miles to fellowship with one another. And it's an all-day thing. And it's not a have-to thing. It's a get-to thing. But something we've also seen in the Nepali church is they don't have many Bible teachers and they long and crave for people to come and expound the word of God to them. And I think as you do, that's something that's lacking. They're still meeting on Saturday. But it's great. And we met there with them on Saturday. And it was wonderful. And, uh, and so it's not so much the main emphasis on Sunday versus Saturday night. It's that there's a recognition of one day out of the others that is to be kept holy in a special concentrated form. Uh, with that, no work is to be done. And so when we, and, and I've been there, in fact, we just had this happen when Christmas fell on a Sunday and we didn't meet as a church. It'd be too difficult to get people here. It would just mess up every, you know, and, and just, you know, grace and we just, we didn't have church here on Sunday. And at the heart of our elders discussion was, man, you know what? Every day is the Lord's. Every day is the Lord's. Saturday is the Lord's. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, it's all the Lord's, right? No doubt. And yet, there's something holy. All throughout the scripture, things are set apart as holy. Things that, why doesn't it all just holy? Why don't we just make it all holy? Well, because the Lord says this is holy. He knows. He says. And so it is. And that settles it. And so, we're all being, cha- we're all being challenged and corrected in this. And we have this word, Sabbath. Sabbath, not Sabbaths, JFB say. The Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles have come to an end with the Jewish services to which they belonged. And so the Colossians were told, don't let anybody judge you regarding those ceremonial services. JFB go on to say the weekly Sabbath rests on a more permanent foundation, having been instituted in paradise to commemorate the completion of creation in six days. It was expressly distinguished as the Sabbath of the Lord from other Sabbaths. Now listen, a positive precept is right because it is commanded and ceases to be obligatory when abrogated or revoked. Okay, so part of our interpretation that we learn in school of ministry is something is something until the Lord says it's not something. Until he specifically, so gifts of the Spirit. We believe the gifts of the Spirit are for today, although there's contradictory opinions within the church of God. And we do not see anywhere where the Lord says the gifts have ceased with the death of the last apostle. I don't see anywhere in the New Testament where things are re- where the, the gifts of the Spirit are revoked. I also don't see whether it's through Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath or the Sabbath was made for man or, uh, or don't let anyone judge you and this and that, that it just completely revokes uh, the, the Sabbath's day. Um, a moral precept is commanded eternally because it is eternally right. It's just, it's right. It's true. If we could keep a perpetual Sabbath, as we shall hereafter, the positive precept of the Sabbath, one in each week, would not be needed. Hebrews 4.9 uses the word rest in the Greek, the keeping of the Sabbath. But we cannot, since even Adam in his innocence needed one amidst his earthly employments, Therefore, the Sabbath is still needed and is therefore still linked with the other nine commandments as obligatory in the spirit. Though the letter of the law has been superseded by the higher spirit of love, which is the essence of the law and the gospel alike. Okay? 
So at the end of the day, it's Jesus' gospel. Okay? That the Sabbath was made for man. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He says how it can be done. In other words, we are free from every human directive. We're free from the doctrines and the commandments of men. No one should be bound to a directive or a taboo that lacks sanction in the Bible. If I may, verse 16 and 17 in Colossians chapter 2 are key verses in the Christian Sabbath of the Lord's Day question. Some people have suggested that Jesus did away with the Sabbath observances and maintained that the New Testament church is no longer to observe a special day for worship and rest. Some go far as to say that to keep Sunday as a Sabbath day on the first day of the week is legalism. According to them, Sabbath keeping robs them from their Christian liberty. What's more, they appeal to Colossians 2 through 16 and 17 as proof. This is the wrong way to think about these verses. It misunderstands Paul who is saying here that believers are under no obligation to keep the Jewish Sabbath of Saturday now that the new covenant has come. He's not setting aside the principle of one day in seven involved in the keeping of Sunday as the Lord's Day, but reinforcing the fact that Christ has come to set us free from the law as a way of salvation. The three terms Paul uses in verse 16, a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath, are often used together in the Old Testament. They describe the various ceremonial days Israel was required to observe. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, called the Septuagint, uses the exact three terms that Paul uses here in 2.16. Christ wants Christians to realize that they are not obligated to observe these days. The spoilers were seeking to impose these ceremonies on the Gentile converts. However, Paul makes it clear that believers are not required to keep Old Testament ceremonial law. They must look only to Christ as every part of the law points to him, the substance versus the shadow. Ian McNaughton in opening up Colossians says, thus the Sabbath of verse 16 is not the Sabbath of the Ten Commandments in its moral aspect, but the Jewish Saturday Sabbath imposed by the spoilers on the New Testament church. Christians meet now for worship on the first day of the week with Christ's mandate, which was given between the resurrection and the ascension. The apostles, as his representatives, made the change, and it was in accordance with the mind of the Spirit of Christ, as you see in early church practice. Okay, now, I think we'll come back next week. And what we'll do next week is we'll look at the idea of, should a Christian have passion for the commandments of God? And we're going to look at some of Jesus' own sayings regarding this. Should we have a care concerning the commandments? Um, and then we're going to look at what practical ways can this be lived out and worked out as we live by grace, not putting trips and burdens on people here in 2016, 17, <laughs> Prineville, where we've got everything under the sun in competition for not only uh, the Lord's Day, because if, if we truly, as a culture, believe that every day is the Lord's Day, then where is everybody? Okay? Because the reality is, not only is it that we just don't esteem every day in the same holiness, but we don't even really have the option of getting off work all day every day to seek the Lord in the way that he's calling us to seek him on the Sabbath day. And so these are real questions that we just ask, and I'm confident that he's going to bring uh, just some good spirit-led insight into how we can do uh, two things, three things. Remember the Lord's Day, 
keep it holy, and rest in Jesus. Okay, so I know this is a lot, guys. This is like, this is like uh, definitely school of ministry stuff here. And um, it's something that we've been processing in core groups and as elders and talking through and working through the word and prayerfully reading different sources, whether it's through Calvary Chapel or through um, Alistair Bag or through um, Metropolitan Tabernacle or, you know, there's, there's actually not a lot of books written recently on the Lord's Day because it's only in the last 70 years that there's just a radical cultural shift to where there's no care for it. That's recent, you guys. 